Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today we pay tribute to the wonderful late WBGO announcer and journal theater critic Michael Bourne. I picked up a couple of chocolate space bars at some store I'd gone by, what turned out to be the only thing I'd get to eat at Woodstock. WBGO's John Kalish reports on the return of clarinetist Andy Statman to the music scene. Because of all this free jazz and other type of music that I was playing, my mandolin playing became very improvisational and very open and very free, and I began to hear things very differently. And I'll chat with legendary jazz pianist Monty Alexander. I have all these memories of different musicians I hung out with, and I'd say, let's go see, let's go to the garden and see so-and-so, and let's go to Yankee Stadium and see so-and-so, and I, and I was a instigator. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. Our hearts are heavy here at WBGO as we pay tribute to the amazing WBGO Journal theater critic and music host Michael Bourne, who died this past Sunday at the age of 75. Dr. Bourne, who earned a Ph.D. in theater from Indiana University, was a WBGO announcer for 37 years, hosting the popular programs Singers Unlimited and Blues Break for several years. He retired from WBGO just this past January, but was still hosting the Singers Unlimited podcast. His mastery came all together when he remembered his wild ride to Woodstock. For those who haven't heard it, you're in for a weird and hysterical moment. I'd never been to New York before, but this enormous rock festival sounded great. I'd been scribbling about music for an underground paper, and I somehow scored a press pass. I didn't even know where Woodstock was. But I happened to see an ad in what must have been the Village Voice for a bus from Midtown Manhattan to the festival and back, round trip something like $35. Except on that very first day, the traffic was already so insane that the bus could get no closer than eight miles. Driver dumped us out, said he'd come pick us up at the same spot on Sunday evening, and I said, yeah, right. I was a young curmudgeon and did not like walking eight blocks, let alone eight miles. But I joined in the passing parade as all the locals of Woodstock watched all these children of God watching by. I was not one of them. I was not in sandals and shorts. I was not in anything tie-dyed or feathered. I was scruffy and bearded, but in a sport coat with slacks and carrying a briefcase. And in the briefcase, a notebook, a tape recorder. I was supposed to interview Joe Cocker. And I'd picked up a couple of chocolate space bars at some store I'd gone by, what turned out to be the only thing I'd get to eat at Woodstock. I didn't have anything to drink, but I needed the call and the only toilet was at a local tavern with more than a hundred standing in line. I opted instead to go around behind a church with a high hedge. I thought nobody'd see me inside the hedge. And I was inside the hedge, and I heard from down below me to the left, Far out, man. I was peeing on a hippie. I said, Oops, sorry, turned. And that's when I heard from down below me to the right, do you know where anywhere we can crash, man? I was peeing on a hippie girl. Uh, no, sorry, I said and zipped and split. 
And I'm thinking, they're already oblivious, and they're miles yet from Woodstock. By the time I got to Woodstock, what's the song? We were half a million strong, and they'd already trampled down all of the fences. A ticket was worthless. A press pass was worthless. There was no press tent where I'd been promised I'd be taken care of. I was on my own. I wandered around Yasger's Field, looking for, it was raining, a dry patch to squat down on. I finally found something to squat down on, and I was so far from the stage that Tim Harden was a blue dot. It was raining. Ravi Shankar tried to play, and then it would rain and he'd stop. He'd try to play, and then it would rain and he'd stop. Could hear everything beautifully. These enormous towers with these giant speakers were resounding the music for miles. But I really don't remember much about the music that I heard that day at Woodstock. I remember Chip Monk warning everybody about the brown acid. Uh, to get back to the, uh, the warning that I've received, you may take it with how many, however many grains of salt you wish, that the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. Uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from that. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest. But uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one, okay? Not something that was going to affect me anyway. I was of that age, but not of the sex, drugs, rock and roll generation. I was only interested in one of those. And it happened that down to earth next to me was someone I've always remembered as Kelly. I can never remember her name. But I remember that she was a Kelly girl, a professional temp secretary from Connecticut. And Kelly seemed to like me. Her sister did not. I was scruffy, but I was in a sport coat and everyone assumed I was a narc. We talked. Night fell. Kelly asked if I wanted to stay with her in her car. I thought about that one thing, but I really thought about getting out of the rain. Except that as we meandered amongst the tens of thousands of people, and seeming almost as many cars, I lost Kelly. I remember one moment when Kelly's sister I saw looking at me, sneering at me, and splitting as if losing me on purpose. cats walked up to me and said, do you need a ride? I said, yes, if you can help us find our car, you can ride with us. But they were so stoned, they didn't even know what their car looked like. Joan Baez was singing the night they drove old Dixie down, loudly. And I, for a moment, even though surrounded by a half a million strong, seemed to be alone in a corner of the field. And that's when this mist arose from the mud. And even though I'd 
not ingested anything hallucinogenic, brown or otherwise. This mist seemed to come and become a face, ugly and snarling at me. And a ghostly arm appeared, and a ghostly hand appeared, and a ghostly finger pointed at me and beckoned, and I heard the voice of this wraith say clearly, Fat boy, come with me. How can I bring you to the sea of madness? I love you so much, it's gonna bring me sadness. I've never seen it through these eyes before now. That's when I ran, toward the road, looking for cars, cars that were rolling, rolling in what seemed to be the direction of out, out of Woodstock. And I came to the road, and cars were rolling, but very slowly, maybe about 10 or 20 feet every minute or two, slowly enough that I could walk up to each driver on the road and shove a fistful of cash in the driver's face and say, New York? New York, no man, New York, Rhode Island, we're going into Rhode Island, man, New York, New York, and finally, this one guy looked up and said, yeah, yeah, but I don't want to wake up my girlfriend, only she looked up and said, let him in, and I got in the front seat, I don't always remember names, but I'll never forget the name of my Samaritan, Joe Castro, and we headed out. 10 feet, 20 feet, 50 feet, and then we'd stop. I finally fell asleep. I remember that I woke up in the middle of the night and Joe himself behind the wheel was asleep. Every car was stopped dead on the road. We'd roll a while, we'd stop a while. Dawn came, we were still far from out, and there were still tens of thousands of people coming into Woodstock. We were hanging at the windows and screaming, go back, go back. There's no food. There's no water. There's no toilets. But they kept on coming, and we kept on going. I got into Joe's car. must have been around midnight. We hit the highway finally around 9 in the morning, 9 hours to go, maybe 9 miles. We drove quickly once on the highway until we came to a roadside eatery, and we pulled in, and already signs were up everywhere. Don't go to Woodstock. Go back. Go back. As we pulled in, a car pulled up next to us, and a fellow got out of the car and looked over at us and said, Peace and brotherhood, my ass. That was the one true moment of brotherhood I felt at Woodstock. I'm Michael Bourne. Looking at the world through the sunset in your eyes. The extraordinary talented Michael Bourne was also a senior contributor for Downbeat, writing for the magazine since 1969. Michael was one of the most unique individuals I've ever met. Extremely intelligent with a flair for writing Broadway reviews that can't be matched. He was one of only a handful of people on the radio that could keep your attention without the help of music or audio clips. He can't be replaced. Dr. Bourne is indeed a radio legend, and we here at WBGO and the jazz and blues community will miss him so very much. Fans of klezmer music know the Brooklyn musician Andy Statman as a clarinet virtuoso, but Statman first made a splash in the music world playing bluegrass on a mandolin. He hasn't been a regular in the bluegrass scene for decades, 
But now a young guitar player who contacted Statman out of the blue has coaxed him back in. WBGO's John Kalish reports on their improbable musical collaboration. Jake Eddy is a 22-year-old bluegrass guitar player who lives in Parkersburg, West Virginia. In January, he emailed Andy Statman expressing admiration for his work. The gist of it was, hey, I don't know if you're aware of me, but I'm aware of you, and I think that we'd sound good playing together, and maybe we could write some tunes together, or maybe we could get together and record these, and call me, basically, if, if you're interested. Statman checked Eddie out on YouTube. Statman was impressed with Eddie's virtuosity and realized the young guitar player was a kindred musical spirit. During their first phone call, Statman agreed to record an album with Eddie. In February, Eddie brought a bass player and a banjo player with him to the recording session in Brooklyn. Jake Eddy's 18-year-old brother, Carter, is the bass player on the resulting album, Nor'easter. On May 22nd, Carter Eddy graduated from high school and later that day drove with his brother from West Virginia to Andy Statman's home in Brooklyn. The next day, the trio started a Northeast tour in Maine. Jake Eddy noticed that as the tour progressed, the trio sound had gotten farther out, meaning more into the jazz realm. Statman says that Eddie is keen on collaborating with him because Eddie wants to move beyond bluegrass. He really wanted to stretch his wings more, and he thought I was the guy that would help him do that. Because of all this free jazz and other type of music that I was playing, my mandolin playing became very improvisational and very open and very free. And I began to hear things very differently than I had as a bluegrass musician. Statman's bluegrass playing often leaves audiences and fellow musicians shaking their heads in disbelief. Bluegrass fiddler Kenny Kosak has been playing with Statman since the late 1960s. Andy blows my mind practically every solo. He's been doing that for, what, 50 years. Despite a decades-long absence from the Bluegrass Festival circuit, Statman is still widely admired in the scene. He had never played the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville until Jake Eddy alerted the venue's booking agent to that fact. In late June, Statman made his Opry debut with the Eddy Brothers, introduced by the bluegrass star Ricky Skaggs, who called Statman one of the greatest musicians he's ever known. All right, Andy, tear it up. The 
person who runs the Opry there said, a lot of people are really excited you're here. Young musicians, old musicians, what could I say? It's good to know that people know of what you've done you know, for your whole life. Although Statman has been performing with the New York Trio for more than 20 years, he's also committed to playing with the Eddy Brothers. Jake Eddy is a member of the critically acclaimed bluegrass band fronted by Becky Buller, but Eddy now says that playing with Statman has become his top priority. We're all thinking full speed ahead. We have a lot of shows coming up. We're going to be recording again. I think the idea is just more, more of everything. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. Legendary jazz pianist Monty Alexander will be performing on September 10th at the Montclair Jazz Festival. He was a recent guest on my podcast Sports Jam, where we talked about the connection between music and his favorite sport of boxing, and his encounters with the stars of both entertainment worlds. Your knowledge of boxing and, of course, music is truly magical, and you are a master storyteller, and that's why we had to have you back here on Sports Jam. When we first talked to you, you made the connection between the rhythm of music in both jazz and boxing. And after seeing Sugar Ray Robinson fight in Kingston, Jamaica, where you grew up, you were 12 years old and saw him in an exhibition match. Can you touch upon once again the connection about rhythm and music and boxing and how you see it all come together? It's a feeling. I was I was watching the fighters, you know, the, the skilled fighters, how to to be offensive, you know, in terms of boxing, how to attack and how to defend. And a certain kind of artistry was involved. I mean, if you're in good shape and you know what you're doing and you're figuring out the other guy's rhythm as you go along, and if you're on the bandstand and you're playing and the drummer is playing it a certain way, then you, you got to blend with that too. It just seemed to me like a very, very similar kind of world you know and my dad was a boxing fan and he knew the promoter the same way he knew the promoter when Louis Armstrong came to Kingston and I snuck out of school to see Satchmo so this is one world of it's like I'm the kid in the candy store man the jelly beans are in the in the bowl which which one am I going to take or and and boxing and and music wasn't jazz so so specific it was just music 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 seemed like one world I got zapped with the, with the thrill of when you see fighters, you know, and I met in those earlier days, the amount of musicians that I met that were awesome fans about the sport. They knew who and why, you know, guys who came out of the world of Joe Lewis. I have all these memories of different musicians I hung out with. And I'd say, let's go see, let's go to the garden and see so-and-so. And let's go to Yankee stadium and see so-and-so. And I, and I was a instigator. So, Anyhow, going back to Sugar Ray Robinson, I knew he was like one of the greatest of all times, as Ali would say. I met him in, at that stage of his life when he was close to retirement. I think it was made public. Miles Davis himself, hero, away from music heroes, was Sugar Ray Robinson. We're speaking with... Monty Alexander here on Sports Jam. 
Monty, since you have really given us such a connection between boxing and music, did it, any bout ever inspire you to write a song? No, where are you coming from these, with these questions? That's off the charts, but that's really appropriate. I am very delinquent in writing songs that I coulda, shoulda, woulda written because I'm a lazy son of a gun, man. I, I, I didn't, when they say you gotta go to school because I, they saw I had some kind of talent and I ran away from the school teacher, guys. I just picked it up, I was watching it and I know I coulda, shoulda, woulda written songs. I had reason to that and you're right, boxing was so but something I enjoyed, I could have written the, the Ballad of Sugar Ray Robinson, or the, whatever, you know. Here it's never too late. You, you know what? You just you just put something in my brain. Look out now. Come, like, come with a with a sip. You know, Terence Blanchard, he wrote a whole, like an opera. A couple of, the, of our top m music talents have, you know, connected with, with like, with not just Ali, but... Uh, Hurricane Ruben Carter. You may remember Ruben Carter. Sure. Went to jail uh, when he was innocent, we believe. There was, um, you know, music, the ballad of Hurricanes Carter, you know, but it's not inappropriate, you know. Joe Lewis was such a an icon of American history and culture that he, you know, when people, when Joe was fighting Harlem, everybody in Harlem, the radio was on the windowsill so that the, the people in the street could hear the fight when Joe was fighting. He was a great hero, especially for black Americans, you know? Lewis measured him, right to the body, a left up to the jaw, and Schmeling is down. The count is five, five, six, seven, eight. The men are in the ring. The fight is over on a technical knockout. Max Schmeling is beaten in one round. But then you had the Irish guys, the Jewish guys that came along, and they, when they fought, Everything stopped, you know? Me, I, I turned down jobs when I had a good gig to play somewhere and something no other guy would have done. I turned on the jobs and found a, a replacement piano player so I could go see whatever boxing match was on that Saturday night because the fights were always on a Friday or a Saturday, you know? So, and I have these memories of incidents when um, I got Tommy Flanagan and I begged him to come take my place at Fat, at Fat Tuesdays when I had to see um, Tommy Hearns fight Pepino Cuevas, I went to the fight and Tommy understood when he, when he went to play the gig. It kept me out of trouble, let's put it that way. Nearly 60 years after you moved to the US from <laughs> Kingston, Jamaica, you have been touring the world relentlessly with various projects, delighting a global audience, drawn to your incredible personality and your soulful message. And you just spent time touring in France, Spain, and Austria, just to name a few. So you've traveled the world and you've played wonderful piano for so many. What was this tour like for you? Because it was kind of return from, you know, what we see as maybe a light at the end of the tunnel for the coronavirus pandemic. So what was this tour? Was it any different for you? Yeah, it just, you know, it was like, when I saw that the, the job offers had backed off because everybody's scared. They didn't know what's going on with this thing. And uh, I just had to adjust to this, this new thing called sit back and, you know, twiddle your thumbs and what, what, what's next? We're all in that same orbit. What's, what's happening? What's happening? But next thing you know, the phone started ringing and I get the emails that we're trying to do a, a festival and 
we all have to be careful. And I, I started little by little after about a year and a half. You know, I went to Switzerland and I said, mm, I guess we better wear the mask because we play, you know, what a weird thing to do, but yes. And we did it and we played gigs like that. And we're, you know, it's like this thing is reopening, you know, it was definitely a, a new discipline of how to find other altars. Because when I play, the music thing is not just, oh, I'm going to perform the music. No, I'm getting therapy, man. This music, if I'm having a, a blues, a bad day, feeling low about something, I know if I go play tonight, goodbye blues. You know, the, the music is a healing force for not just for me, but people who come into the proximity of what I do, not just me, but other musicians who, who do it that way. It's, it's not no technical school thing with me. This is it's like, I tell people, this is like blood, like when Dracula need blood. The Dracula, give me that blood, man. That's how I'm going to stay in my thing, you know? And musicians like us, we need to express ourselves. It's a real, um, it's almost an addiction. So during that time, I just had to sit back and accept that this is a world issue here. The world doesn't know what to do. And uh, thankfully, thank God, there's scientists, people that came along and said, well, take the vaccination, the this and the that. So we've had a miraculous uh, return to a little more normalcy. Yeah, but even though this thing has not gone away, we have to be mindful it's still here. And be thoughtful when you go to certain crowded places. You don't know, you don't know. So I still have that ethic, you know. And um, I uh, I still enjoy, you know, what what I enjoyed in the past. And but I don't I don't um, I don't throw caution to the wind, you know. Not to make you separate one country from another, but was there any country during this tour that you got? A different vibe from or a, a, a reception you didn't expect well you know what um i think if you're reflecting that to, to covid and what happened i would say that everywhere you 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 look out into the audience and you could feel the apprehension you know but we came we're, they're trying to live up to their their what was enjoyable from two years before let's go hear this guy play the piano and we'll get a little upliftment and you know and that's my thing is to bring upliftment not just not just to the people but to myself i mean i saw louis armstrong when i was 10 years old and this guy got on the bandstand with that trumpet and he said good evening everybody and just about that time everybody started chuckling and laughing and the world was a world that they don't use very much with our music entertainment entertainment was what duke ellington did the great great maestro of music nat king cole he brought entertainment. He didn't bring a school recital. He didn't say, and it wasn't like, you have to figure out what I'm playing, you know, these men. And I saw that. That was like upliftment, uplifted spirit. You know, because everybody gets a little down, you know, and said, tonight, man, I can't wait to go see um, uh, whoever the artist is. I mean, pop music, you know, whatever. Who, Rolling Stones, we're going to have a ball. There's <laughs> Mick Jagger doing. And in our world, where it's a little more, I, I'll use the word, excuse me if I offend anybody, refined. It's more refined. It's more of substance. It's not about that, you know, putting on a show with makeup on your face. And this is just, it's a dignified way to be, to be, <laughs> to be, a, to be an animal. You know, you're about this thing. Ah, here it is. 
And I saw that as a kid. And I, I bring that, you know, if I'm on a good night, man, I'll, I'll tell a joke, I talk, I, I don't tell people stories. Like I'm talking to you about boxing mostly, but I, I revel in getting the mic and start. I wrote this song because boom, and I tell this story. It goes on for three, four minutes, and I say, uh oh, talking too much. And the, people, <laughs> and the people inevitably said, no, don't stop talking. Tell us more. Tell us more, you know, because I have filled with these memories that I cherish. I really do. I cherish the fact that Frank Sinatra came to me when I was playing somewhere, and Mr. S, he said, hey, kid, you got it. We want you to come to New York. And so I came to New York because this, this man who was one of our kings of, of entertainment, you know, I met Miles Davis. I met these people, and they gave me the tap on the shoulder, and I, I got my confidence go up. You know, it didn't come from Professor Jones at the school. No, it came from life. You know, be, being around, you know, Ali, being around uh, Evander Holyfield. You know, and I, I went out of my way to meet these, these heroes. You know, I mean, they're they're almost comic book heroes. You know, but they're real people. You know. And um, I still have that. You can hear the entire Sports Jam conversation with Monty Alexander at wbgo.org slash studios. Find Sports Jam with Doug Doyle on the NPR list of podcasts or wherever you hear podcasts. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, 88.3 FM, WBGO, and WBGO.org.